talk about kind of culture and we talk about Islam instead of talking about political issues. Um, but the other thing is that, yeah, as you were just saying, when we talk about kind of um, moderate slash extreme, you know, you know, the good moderate versus the kind of bad extremists, um, we forget that actually the whole way in which counterterrorism policing operates is through policing, um, you know, the whole of the Muslim right. community. So it's um, so it doesn't actually matter if you are right, quote unquote right. Preemptive policing, prevent is about policing the moderates. Mm. Salam's peace and hello. You're listening to another episode of Breaking Binaries. I'm your host, Sahima Manzal Khan. I go by the brown hijabi online, and I'm a writer, spoken word poet, and educator. As a society, we're obsessed with explaining our world through the use of straightforward opposing categories. So good or bad, moderate or radical, pretty or ugly, victim or villain, the list goes on. All these sets of binaries that we use to explain our world tend to be quite superficial and hide the real complexities, politics and nuances of how we've been encouraged to think. So every episode, I'll be sitting down with a different friend to break a binary and see how doing so helps us think more critically and widely about ourselves, our world and therefore how to transform it. This episode, I'm joined by my friend Nisha Kapoor. She's someone I really admire. She's an assistant professor in sociology at the University of Warwick, and she's the author of a book called Deport, Deprive, Extradite, 21st Century State Extremism, which had a huge impact on me when I read it. We had an amazing conversation around her work, and I really hope you enjoy listening. Right, so today I'm joined by Nisha Kapoor. Nisha is assistant professor in sociology at the University of Warwick and the author of Deport, Deprive, Extradite, 21st Century State Extremism. Uh, This was a book that I really enjoyed. And so since then, I've kind of been like following what Nisha's doing and what's going on. And so that is why I asked her to join me today. And the binary we're going to be breaking is moderate and extremist. Um, So this is a binary, obviously, that's often used to talk about Muslims um, and predominantly, I think, Muslim men, I would say. Um, And obviously in cases of what is termed terrorism um, or to kind of talk about who is not a terrorist. Um, The way that I think we all just to kind of like get us all on the same page in general, I would say that extremism is seen as a a negative thing um, and moderation is the good version, you know, so you're trying to not be seen as extremist, be seen as moderate when you're a Muslim. Um, But what is kind of obvious um, to to me as a Muslim is that this is not really about theology at all. Um, These words like extremism, moderation don't describe anything to do with your practice necessarily or your faith or any of those things. And so in that sense, it's kind of more ideological. And maybe I can ask you the question here about whether, why, why you think it is that, um, it comes down to things like, I would decide that someone's extreme, not because of, um, their theological beliefs necessarily, but maybe because they wear a niqab or because they've got a beard or because they're speaking Arabic on the plane. How how have we come to a situation where moderate and extreme um, are these categories that we all kind of know what they mean and yet we do not define necessarily? Does that make sense? So first of all, hi. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I'd really straight the in show. there. That's a bit weird. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I guess the categories around um, moderate and extremism are... Uh, have their own, you know, circulate kind of with these assumed meanings now um, because they've been kind of ingrained over the last 15, 20 years um, as part, you know, as part of the war on terror Mm. um, where the kind of understandings of terrorism or, you know, kind of 
Islamic political violence have been kind of produced or talked about as if they're rooted in um, Islam itself. Right. So the the kind of the way in which the binary moderate extremism works or a kind of underlying assumption mm. is that political the political violence uh, that's been manifest both in the West right. and in Europe and, uh, you know, over the, the Middle East, the global South, uh, is rooted in Islam rather than in a series of social, political, historical factors. Right. Okay. So in a sense, by focusing on whether someone is moderate or extreme, you're focusing on them and making it about, you're kind of ignoring those factors? Yeah. Well, well it roots it. It's what um, the scholar Amud Mandani called culture talk. It's this idea that the the political and social problems uh, that we currently face are not talked about or or discussed in terms of um, the particular uh, political formations that that have allowed them to you know come into being, but are but are talked about instead as if they're rooted in Islam, as if they're rooted in a kind of um, misreading of Islam, when we come to defining the difference between moderate and extremist, the kind of liberal response has been to say, well, it's not all of Islam. It's just some misreadings of Islam, which are the problem. And while that's sometimes seen as, um, you know, a better response, the problem is when you talk in that way, you don't really address the underlying assumption that the prob- that the kind of root cause of terrorist terrorism is in um is in you know is islamic culture in inverted commas rather than in in something kind of you know in a in a the product of a political context yeah 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 yeah. no that makes full sense and i think i remember the clearest way that i think that was said to me was that um kind of whether you think whether you say like you kind of like Tommy Robinson, like all Muslims are terrorists, or if you're like Theresa May and you're like, it's just a minority of extremists. Actually, the outcome, as you're saying, is the same because it's essentially, well, how do you know which are part of that minority that's extreme, if that's what you believe? The only way to find that out would be to assume that it could be any Muslim and therefore right. all Muslims. Right. It kind of comes back to the, as you say, right. it's just the fact that you're Muslim that's the, the problem. Is right. That kind of I, I mean, the the whole, so, so, I mean, I guess there's a few things. One is the this kind of displacement and distortion of the political issue at hand. So we talk about kind of culture and we talk about Islam instead of talking about political issues. Um, but the other thing is that, yeah, as you were just saying, when we talk about kind of um, moderate, slash extreme, you know, you know, the good moderate versus the kind of bad extremists. Um, we forget that actually the whole way in which counterterrorism policing operates is through policing, um, you know, the whole of the Muslim right. community. So it's, um, so it poli- doesn't actually matter if you are right, quote unquote. Right. Preemptive policing prevent is about policing the moderate mm. to prevent any, um, that's really interesting because I think that there's a, a kind of assumption amongst, um, like, you know, some Muslims that if I just, you know, that kind of attitude of like, it's okay that we're being surveilled because as long as I don't do anything bad, um, you know, I'm, I, I know I'm not an extremist. Therefore that is kind of the proof is in the pudding kind of thing. But actually that's not the point is kind of what you're saying is that this right. is a legitimized, this like assumption is legitimizing surveillance on a, a, a kind of huge scale. Right. Right. 
Right. Okay. So it's, yeah, it's, it's under, it's underpinning. Um, yeah, it's, it's underpinning because the, the idea is that there's always a spectrum. Mm. Um, and yeah, so it underpins this idea that we need to please everybody to prevent, to prevent the kind of possibility mm. of something else, which is, you know, then there's another kind of epistemic violence, you know, another kind of violence in terms of policing that happens at the preventative level, right? Because yeah. it's about kind of saying, well, uh, you know, we're going to police anyone who um, critiques Western foreign policy or we're going to critique right. anyone who wants to express our identities in a particular way. And so then that kind of comes down to, I guess it comes in a way back to, well, who gets to define what extreme is? Because in that case, as you're saying, it becomes this really, uh, like it's weaponized against you because it's like, actually, if you're dissenting against the government, now that's extreme too. Right. Um, And, and, and yeah. And then if we were going to be really critical, we would say that actually the other problem we're talking in those categories is it forces us to want to move away from being identified as the extreme was mm. actually in some circumstances um we might want to call for uh extreme um positions you know th- that are necessary so in mm. in terms of things like mobilization against climate change right now okay. is re- requires a kind of quite extreme response in, right. you know, in terms of the level of um yeah. you know devastation or if we were thinking about deportation some of the measures like the sunset 15 um took required you know that the the kind of gravity of what's mm. being done requires a kind of extreme response mm-hmm. so i mean i'm not yeah so there's a kind of yeah, it forces us away from thinking critically about sort of dissenting. Yeah, no, that's not, that feels completely true. And I think it's also it just making me think about the way that um, when the word radical is applied to Muslims, that's kind of seen as, again, like a moral bad. But if you're talking about someone who's got like radical politics, that becomes kind of like you're so woke, you're so like on the edge, the cutting edge of understanding things. Um, so again, maybe it's also about like, you know, kind of where the where the value of these words is constructed to, and who gets to right. be them, and, right. and when that's good or bad. Um, okay, so I wanted to just, um, I guess, g- just go back to the point we were making earlier. So that this is also kind of about, I think you said, a, a misunderstanding of of violence or political violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that sense, um, what I'm thinking you mean there is that when we assume that extremists are more likely to be violent we're kind of saying that the cause of violence is the fact that they're extreme, which again, we don't define, but that we would, we would kind of assume someone to be extreme based on very superficial things. And so in a way, and this feeds into what you're saying about prevent and surveillance, we're kind of left with this situation where, well, we see this happen all the time, right? Where so a man on the plane speaks in Arabic, mm-hmm. he gets taken off the plane. Why? Because we've associated those markers with him being more extreme. And, and also, is there a sense in which it's actually like the more quote unquote Muslim you appear to be, the more like predisposed to violence you're also seen to be. Mm-hmm. Where Muslim then becomes also this, not again, not about theology, but about. Yeah, absolutely. So there's, I mean, there's a ton of ideological work that's been done around producing, um, you know, the Muslim subject as being kind of synonymous with the terrorist. And yeah, as you were saying, all these kind of identifiers around sort of dress, around, you know, habit, around behavior, around language, you know, all these kind of ways of reading um, individuals have become um, 
the the ways yeah the ways in which we're kind of taught to think about what's potentially threatening or, yeah. or not and of course that has implications for individuals that are um you know read as suspects yeah. in some way for when they travel or yeah um yeah and so you're not saying space. and i think the other important thing to say is that you're not saying that um i guess what you're asking is that like when political violence does occur or individuals do perpetrate violence that we look at the context that that's happened in rather than saying, oh, it's because they're extreme. Because I guess I'm just thinking that some people might think, well, hang on, are you saying that extremism is not a problem? Or like, what are right. you saying there? So yeah, the, the point isn't to be naive about violence. It's not to be naive about or to deny, um, you know, the mass death that have occurred in multi, you know various sort of terrorist attacks. Um, but it is to say that... Uh, we need to understand, yeah, both the ways in which, uh, in you know, kind of, um, so in the context of the global south, or in the, um, the, you know, the, the role that kind of Western imperialism has played in cultivating the conditions for a number of, um, you know, these problematic um, movements like ISIS to to have flourished, um, you know, and and for um, for violence to take place, but but at, but also to to put this into context of. Um, the mass numbers of people who are being surveilled or criminalized or arrested or incarcerated um, on the back of activities or behaviors that in other contexts, you know, we would never think of or conceive of as being a crime. Mm. So, you know, we would defend as being the right to freedom of speech or the, you know, political debate or, um, you know, the right to express a kind of opinion mm. that most of the activities that are criminalized under counterterrorism are not violent activities, mm. behaviors. And in some cases, the very basis of what people are being uh, criminalized for is, you know, is totally questionable. Mm. Um, well, actually, let's move on to that. Let's let's talk about that because also you're the title in the title of your book you, you said you call term state extremism. So then you're kind of using this term to describe what's never described as extreme, which is the state. And so maybe you can maybe just say say a bit more about kind of. Um, what this counterterrorism kind of apparatus is that we're like in and we're talking about because I know you've just said like incarceration, deportation, etc. But what like what's maybe the premise that all this rests on or how why does it exist? Why are we in the situation? Um yeah, I mean so for me, one of the things that was kind of interesting about looking at um, a small, you know, a small group of cases. Yeah, um, so do you want to say yeah, what are the cases you look at in your book? So yeah, so the uh the the book focuses on um, a small number of um, Muslim men who were extradited from Britain to the US. Um, extradition being? Extradition being the deportation of individuals from one state to another to face charges in the other state. So in this case, um, uh, these men were being um, in requested for um, for trial, uh, for 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 trial in the US by the UK. They were particularly contentious because in pretty much all the cases, there was very little, um, there was very little, or the, the kind of justification for why they needed to be moved to the US for trial uh, was kind of very questionable. Um, uh, there wasn't much for most of the cases, there's not really kind of much of a basis for the US to hold jurisdiction over them. Right. 
Um, and, um, and is that linked, is this whole extradition thing, um, is this particularly linked to counterterrorism? Like, does, does this have, like, what's so the no, So, 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 the, so there is already in international law uh, historically been kind of extradition treaties between the US and the UK and, and between European states, you know, be- between numerous states, um, which allow for, so say if somebody has committed a crime and then flees mm-hmm. your state right. but they've cr- committed a crime in your yeah. state you can uh you can request ask yeah you. You, so extradition acts as a way to kind of request them to come back to face the charges that they've that's the kind mm-hmm, of mm-hmm, main purpose mm-hmm. but then the ones that you focus on in your book yes and so the uh there had been some debate for some time pre 911 around lowering uh, around changing extradition laws generally between in in Europe and also between the US and the UK um and post 911 extradition is recognized as one of the possibilities or as a, as as one of the options for helping to kind of police um individuals who are sort of brought into the kind of suspects, you know, who, who are brought into the, um, into the surveillance of, of kind of counterterrorism measures. So people who are suspected to be terrorists kind of thing or to go into terrorist activities. Right. Who can't be, who, who can't be. So the, the first individual arrested after 9-11 in relation to the 9-11 attacks mm-hmm. was a guy called Lotvi Rassi, who was, um, who was an Algerian national living in London. And uh, he is arrested. He's detained for about six days and then he's released, but he's immediately rearrested mm. on charges on an, um, based on an indictment, based on a request for extradition by the US. Right. And what is, and do you get to know the full request, like what you've done or what you've Well, charges? at that time, the US was saying, the only basis that the US, the reason the US wanted him was because he had trained at the same flight school as the 9-11 hijackers. Okay. Um, and they, the US was suggesting that he was culpable in helping to train the fight, the, the um, hijackers. Um, but the, the only evidence they had to some, you know, which would amount to um, a charge w- w- was that he had failed to disclose knee surgery on an aviation, on um, flight, Wow. Aviation uh, training form. So when he'd when he had been learning to fly as a pilot, he'd he'd failed to disclose knee surgery to them, and that was the basis of the, the criminal charge initially, because they needed some kind of charge. Wow. To bring and, but him their charge is related to him being training terrorists, quote unquote. Right. So they were saying wow. that um, we just want to indict him. We we can indict him for this, but really this is a holding charge. Right. Uh, we we think that he's involved, hmm. and we're just trying to find more evidence. That's interesting. So so he was incarcerated. He was detained in the UK for um, some time, um, bef- for a few months, while the US could find more evidence. Right. The US couldn't find any more evidence, and it came to light that the reason they wanted to bring him over uh, was simply to question him. Um, which is not obviously a, um, a sound basis for extradition, but it, oh. it was the basis of, of why they wanted to bring him over. Um, because there was scrutiny at this time of his case um, in the court, mm. um, this comes to light and actually he's released and later he receives um, compensation from the British okay. government to about two, two million pounds, I think. Oh. So a substantial amount of compensation. Um, but but uh, shortly after this happens... Uh, 
an extradition treaty is passed, a new extradition treaty is passed between the US and the UK, which says that the US only has to provide reasonable suspicion. It doesn't have to provide any evidence. Um, what? So when they want to extradite someone, right. they don't have to show what? evidence? No. So what could they say? Are there examples of what reasonable suspicion counts as? Um, so they could just, yeah, I mean, so they could just say that they um, suspect this person uh, was involved in some kind of terrorist activity. And that um, would be it. And that would be reason to... Yeah, just on the basis of a, so, you know, on on some kind of... They, they don't have to provide any kind of right. um, evidence to, to um, inform the suspicions, which would mean uh, that if that had been in place when Lapdi Rassi was first arrested, he would have been extradited, potentially, right? right, right? right, right. So the, the point about this long story is um, to kind of... So what was very difficult to happen, which is not to say that this all starts in 9-11, um, the kind of counterterrorism, um, you know, the the, um, the 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 kind of focus on sort of Muslims um, and the need to kind of create a sort of um, global um, Islamic threat kind of begins in the 1990s. But there's another case I talk about in the book, um, Min Pham, who's extradited in 2015. And when he's extradited, um, he is, uh, from the moment of arrest to kind of extradition, uh, his his transfer, his deportation to the US happens very quickly. He's deprived of his citizenship and then subsequently extradited. And um, he... So as he soon as the he appeals the extradition, okay. uh, he sorry he appeals the citizenship deprivation, but he's still extradited while this is ongoing, uh. and this happens very quickly. And kind of what this what the following these cases over this period of time helps to show is that what was possible but difficult to achieve in mm. two thousand and one is now happening very quickly mm. by two thousand and fifteen. So when we think about these extreme cases, it's really important to reckon with the intensification of kind of mm. police or state powers mm. that have grown in this time. And it's kind of been in the name of protecting us, right? Like in the name of counterterrorism that, that right. we can now... In the because, name of national security. Yeah. yeah. And, and I just wanted to ask, why did you choose to focus in your book particularly on these cases of extradition? Like you could you could have written about lots of things. Yeah, I mean, there, there could have been a sample. I could have taken a sample of... Um, you know any number of extra, you know cases who have um, of individuals who've ex who experienced the sort of hard end of counterterrorism policing. One of the reasons I thought it was important to focus on extradition was because while there'd been lots of up uh, dissent and uproar against things like extraordinary um, individuals who'd been sort of rent subject to extraordinary rendition, which is um, the kind of extrajudicial kidnapping of individuals, usually from places in the global south, to clandestine prison facilities, mm. uh, which is another kind of key technique, key strategy that was being used um, in the, you know, as part of the kind of war on terror, counterterrorism, mm. um, policing um, by the by the US. Um, there was kind of loads of up once this the media exposed this and I think around 2006 there was lots of dissent because it was outside of the law it was yeah. actually judicial it, you know it was just it was literally um, uh, and when European um, 
when the European Council found out that European states had been mm. complicit, like Poland, there was a black site, a, a clandestine prison in, in situation in Poland. Poland were condemned for their wow. participation. And um, some of these flights had stopped in Britain to refuel and mm. then gone on to somewhere else. So while while things like this had happened, um, rendition has received lots of right. um, critique. Because extradition happens through the law, mm. um, it was seen as kind of more legit or it hasn't received yeah. the same kinds of protest. But there's lots of similarities between these cases. So I guess one of the things I wanted to stress was that, um, you know, this this wasn't just about trying to, the, the solution is not to just think about trying to bring counterterrorism into the civilian justice system, that actually there's already lots of kind of uh, extreme measures that are allowed or legitimated within the civilian yeah. justice system. Uh, there's a kind of arbitrary way in which yeah. the law works. Or yeah, and I think that's interesting because I know tactical that way. when I've told people about kind of your book or what I've learned from kind of the, like you say, the extremities of, of the kind of things that the state can do, like people's response is often like, how is that legal? Um, as if there's like this idea that like, what is, that the right. law is it kind of, it's this assumption, I think that the law is inherently there to protect people from these kinds right. of excesses. But when actually it's the people who are the law in a sense, or the, the apparatus that is the law, right? Um, that's quite an overwhelming feeling. Right. And of course the law is, is tactical, you know, so it, the law is situated in a kind of culture where we already read some beings as being more human than others. So in the US system, you know, it, you can keep somebody in solitary confinement, you know, in counterterrorism cases have been kept pre-trial for two or three years in solitary confinement, um, you know, so before you even have the prospect of a trial wow. and most individuals then enter into a plea. Of, but, 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 so you're bargain. being detained, but you haven't been convicted of anything and you haven't been. Right. Right. Because of the nature of, um, counts, you know, it being a kind of counterterrorism offence, mm. even though in the cases that I talk about in the book, counter you know, the terrorist offence is uh, allowing somebody else to stay in your apartment allowing somebody else who's deemed to be suspicious to stay in your apartment and use your mobile phone. Right. So that's really important. I think these concrete examples, because right. actually I think maybe people would assume that the kinds of charges that, you know, you have just killed someone. So no, now, but that's I mean, not what you're talking about like, at all. No. So, um, like uh, Hashmi's case is, you know, he, somebody's, uh, when he's in London as a student, somebody, an, an acquaintance of his stays, um, in his apartment, uh, he has in his suitcase ponchos and socks, which the US later decide are mil Al Qaeda military training gear, and they find their way to Pakistan, the ponchos and socks. And because he had let this person stay in his apartment and use his phone, he's done for material support for terrorism and mm. is, you know, incarcerated mm. Mm. in, sol you know, in, in really strict conditions, in torturous wow. conditions for um, a really long period of time. We have Baba Ahmed, who was, um, you know, who, who's indicted a famous case in the US, but, you know, his, the basis of the charges against him are managing a website mm -hmm. or um, Dala Hassan, who is simply a clerk on a website and types up a document that's deemed to be, you know, a a suspicious, you know, a, yeah. a, of of the location of um, yeah. 
um, ships, US. And then subsequently, vessels. all these men's kind of lives are, I would say, really, <laughs> I don't know what the word would be. I don't really can't imagine what that what that means for your life for, for you to have to experience that. But I guess, so I know when I read the book, I, I really, uh, I like that you go into such depth because I think it, it's really, in some places it's quite jarring to kind of think that actually this is a reality that's like parallel to my reality. Do you know what I mean? But I'm wondering if some people would say, well, you know, this is never going to happen to me. Like, why should I, why should I have to care about, you know, these extreme rare cases of extradition, which, yeah, I agree. They're really bad, but what can I do about, I mean, what, why do we need to care about this? Or why is this important? Why is this important? I suppose. I mean, I, I guess because the, the legacy of all of this is that, uh, you know, is, is what it puts on the book is, is, I mean, well, I mean, there's a number of things to say. One, just in, you know, if you're committed to kind of justice and sort of anti-racism, anti-imperialism, um, you know, all of these cases are important, but, but, but to say that, I mean, I think fundamentally they're important because all the all of the kind of um, activities, sorry, all of the um, state, there's a whole ton of powers, state powers that are put on the books as a result of dealing with high profile terrorism cases. Yeah. So citizenship deprivation, as we've um, heard about quite recently has been going on for quite some time and it's on the back of you know despised figures habu hamza mm, abu, mm, you know mm. path pathologized individuals mm. um that these measures are passed mm. and yeah no one yeah. really cares but but they have much bigger con you know they're they have long-lasting legacies and yeah. they change the nature of the uh, they change the nature of government they change the nature of what we understand as democracy yeah. they change the nature of our political mm -hmm. you know of our society and i think that's the irony because this as part of that whole uh, like counter terror rhetoric as well you have this idea that these extremists who are bad and who is kind of okay to remove from our country um it's because they're doing things that are against our values and british values but his irony is is that they are these things like law and order democracy which are the very things that you're saying actually in the name of counter terrorism are being eroded right and i think that's i found that particularly um insidious kind of thing because it's it's really frustrating I think that people don't necessarily see that because it's like that this word of British values just gets bandied around and, and extremists of course are definitely opposed to British values and, and moderates of course are kind of that's where you have those ideas of like what is it to be British Muslim right. um, but again it's like actually re not realising that Britishness is just this very um, like fluid like slip through your fingers kind of thing that you can't actually grasp onto um so yeah, that's, that's, but that, that reminds me of something that, um, as well, that really like struck me from your book and it was a very like simple argument, but I think I just hadn't, I hadn't seen somebody say it so clearly, which is, um, I think you say, so it, it kind of in terms of, and this fits into the whole, like, you know, extremist and moderate binary, you say, um, that to call someone a terrorist is to actually make them subhuman, to delegitimize their motives as fanatical or cultural rather than political and to displace the structural causes of violence, as we've discussed earlier. But I think that idea about them specifically being subhuman is super interesting because I, I think most people think terrorism is a word to describe the type of violence, but actually you're suggesting that terrorism is a word to describe the type of human who's perpetrated that type of violence. And so it's not necessarily that 
you know, like if um, some random white guy goes and shoots up a school in America, sometimes people will be like, we, you know, he's a terrorist too. But actually the point is less that um, his violence should be deemed terrorism. It's the fact that the word terrorism in of itself is used to, 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 to rid the humanity of certain people and therefore justify treating them in a certain way. Is that, uh, that's what I kind of took from your argument. Right. Um, but, but also that it's a deeply racialized construct. So it's, yeah, I mean, it's not to say, so absolutely it, it's not a race at the bottom, but it's, it's, I think we do need to reckon with the fact that it's, you know, there's a, there's a genealogy of terrorism being used in a colonial context to disavow anti-colonial resistance. Mm. Um, that's important, mm -hmm. uh, which is not to say that everything that gets labeled terrorism is progressive. It's not. No. Um, but but it's linked to. I think you're right because there's other like parallels of like you know what what historically are called riots and what are called revolutions and what are called rebellions and what are called. And I think right this is in that line, right? Right, right, right. And yeah, so it, I, yeah, it's just it's recognizing that the terrorist yeah is a, is a racial is it's a racial it's a racialized construct and. Um, which 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 is why it resonates, you know, it mm. gets to, it gets used to res mm. uh, to talk to make sense of certain contexts yeah. and not others. And then also that because um, I think it it goes back to what you were saying before that like not everybody is seen as human, and this is why the law is, you know, people are surprised sometimes that the law does the things it does. But I think the thing that um, and I always say this to people when I and I read it in your book, um, but is that because it is just such a interesting and like devastating thing that I think you say that at the same time that Universal Declaration of Human Rights is being drawn up, genocide is ongoing in the colonies. And so even at that very moment, who counts as human is is a, not a whole segment of the world. And therefore now today, I mean, I think you're suggesting that it's no surprise then that those same people who could not historically fit the category of human cannot today. And so when we talk about human rights and we're like, how, but that extradition, that sounds so against human rights, but that's fine because those people aren't human. And then that does also link to them being extremists, terrorists, da, 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 da. Um, which I think when you break that down, leaves us in a very like bare position then where we're like, actually, without all these words, we do just have to face the context, um, which is probably really useful, but also quite overwhelming, I think. Right. I mean, I I think the the problem with this kind of simple uh, simplified way of understanding um you know of kind of using racist language or imagery or ideologies to m make sense or you know to to provide a kind of way of narrating these political issues is that it it then um moves us away from being able to have more kind of informed, mm. difficult conversations about kind of root causes mm. around, um, you know, how this kinds of, you know, messed, you know, often sort of messed up politics mm. um, or, you know, episodes of violence to kind of manifest in the first place. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it's to, to yeah to to and and to center yeah to center the sort of individuals and the the people who are subject to most harm by them, which is never who are never centered in yeah. the kind of state narratives around, um, you know, around sort of terrorism. Yeah, that's so, very true. Um, you know, people in the global south, um, uh, Muslims have been most subject to terrorist attacks. Yeah. Um. And so, yeah, it's it's about kind of, I think what's frustrating 
um, about the whole thing is that, yeah, it, it moves us away from um, or it de-skills us or, or de- In yours is really to um, being able to kind of talk about mm. authoritarianism, to be able to talk about, um, you know, kind of why for some people ISIS offer something, mm. um, you know, in a kind of critical but productive way mm. um, that would kind of move us to some, you know, to some... Out of the cycle place. of sort of the same condemnation and bad and good right. yeah no that's that feels really true to me and actually on that on that note then because I think Shamima Begum's case keeps coming to mind with all of this I mean with the labels of moderate and extremist and those kind of categories it feels like extremism is is also a very like gendered concept in the sense that I I don't think I've ever until the Shamima Begum case I don't think I've ever seen um a woman, a Muslim woman being so kind of um, narrated as like evil and like you get like, you know, Abu Hamzas and all these people who are like, they're just really bad guys and therefore let's deport them. But um, for me, this was really interesting that that she was. And the reason I was so intrigued as well is that I'm like as a Muslim woman and and kind of being aware of discourses that are out there, it's like actually the main thing that people want to say about Muslim women usually is that we have no agency and that we're like just being forced to do everything. But then with her, it was like, she's evil because she's, she's got no remorse. She chose to go and do this evil thing. And it is very much this, um, I would say it's even worse than being an extremist. You know what I mean? Like the category that she's fallen into is sort of like reprehensible. <laughs> like don't like, and you know, people, and it's fascinating because the, the like rhetoric I've seen around it is people being like, don't let her back. Like how could, as if it's just this like, <laughs> I don't know, like not not this state or legal structure. It's just like this, I don't know. I just find it really fascinating. What do you, I wondered what you think about all of it. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think it's the first time that uh, Muslim women have been portrayed as the, you know, the, the kind of heinous um, villain. I think that in the past few years, there's been a growing mm. tendency to criminalise um, Muslim women in this way. But there has been even, you know, there's earlier examples of people like Afia Siddiqui. And um, there, there, are, there, there are earlier examples of women who have been criminalised in that kind of mm. um, despotic way. And I, I think the other thing to think of is, you know, those cases of men who dressed up uh, yeah. in the full niqab to, to escape, yeah, you know, to, 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 to move outside of Britain, uh, you know, also invokes the kind of mm. representation of the Muslim woman mm-hmm. as the potential terrorist, even mm-hmm. though, you know, a, they're playing, you know, it was, it was men, but they're, they're playing with the kind yeah. of imagery around um, the burqa and the, uh, you know, the niqab is, you know, is, is this, and then we also have historical examples where, you know, so the Battle of Algiers, yeah. the, the kind of images of Muslim women um, as potentially hiding kind of a bomb yeah, under there. Yeah, of course. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, and that's played with. Um, so, and, and, and of course, the whole fixation around sort of dress. Um, uh, so, I, d- I mean, I think, I think... One of the things that Shamima Bacon's case allows us to do then is talk more about sort of the gendered implications of counterterrorism, mm-hmm. um, you know, the silencing of the experiences of Muslim women, both directly um, 
you know, poli- the direct sort of policing, yeah. the hounding, uh, street hate crime on the streets. Um, but also, and then also, of course, the relationship to uh, their role as, um, you know, within community. So um, the expectations that Muslim women are supposed to be kind of points of surveillance within communities. Yeah, yeah actually, can we talk a bit about that? Because I'm not sure if that is as common knowledge as maybe we're presuming in this conversation, but um, yeah, like what, like historically kind of in the last 15 years, I suppose, how has the counterterrorism kind of apparatus tried to use Muslim women? Because uh, yeah, I think I remember hearing that the Home Office kind of funding, um, I was was really intrigued to hear that a big part of it goes to the Department for Communities and Local Governments. And that a lot of what you would I think what's usually seen as stuff to do with crime and criminality comes down to this very like communities and and then a lot of this money going specifically to projects around like you know um, I remember reading about projects about like Muslim women's role models and like right. getting Muslim women to be more confident and right. and so how is that how does that become linked to counterterrorism? Right. what's going on there I mean like yeah like you say there's been a lot of money and effort like 10 years ago being put into kind of civic integrationist programs, English language stuff that have all really, you know, focused on, um, you know, trying to integrate Muslim women, trying to bring Muslim women into, you know, recognize as sort of valued members of society and community. Um, often these programs, so under the Blair administration, um, there was... Uh, an organization, a, women, a Muslim women's kind of network organization um, set up to help do this, but it was funded by prevent monies, right. um, which meant that actually part of the expectation of Muslim women, you know, so, so alongside this stuff around kind of employment and, mm. um, you know, civic contributions, it was, you know, there was also this kind of prevent agenda and, um, uh, encouraging Muslim women to sort of take, you know, to participate in the kind of hearts, winning hearts and minds. And sort of surveilling on on quote unquote their own. Right. Or or kind of partaking in the sort of de-radicalization stuff. Right. And then under Tories, this intensifies and there's direct calls by the police to, to Muslim women to report (laughs) um, any kind of suspicious behavior of their loved ones, you know, the um, family members. Which I also find fascinating in the sense that there's another contradiction there with like this assumption that like on the one hand you need to like raise their aspirations and power them all of this, but also that they have so much control and power over their communities that like they 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 single handedly will be able to just like <laughs> I don't know like particularly over men because that's the weird it's like this weird like at the same time they're <laughs> subordinated by men and they will be able to influence all the men. Right. I mean. Right. Uh, the, 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 yeah, the, the, so, I mean, the, the, yeah, the levels of kind of manipulation and, uh, pressure, um, they, yeah, they, they happen in kind of other ways. Um, I, I mean, I, I think one of the things that's, you know, also worth mentioning is, um, is all the multi layers upon the, the multi levels upon which this kind of policing ends up being descri- destructive at the community mm. level. So, it, you know, it's not simply about kind of the number of arrests or mm. the the kind of the 
stuff around criminalization, but it's, yeah, it's all the kind of psychological damage mm. that's done, the fear, the constant fear, mm. which is, you know, this stuff around citizenship deprivation or arrests or are also to produce fear yeah. in everybody else that this could happen. Yeah, 100%. Um, and you know, it creates violence, you know, it, it creates anger, mm-hmm. which is then has, where does that go? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's destructive. And-, and I think also like communal trauma to the extent that just in a very day-to-day way, in the way that like, if you know something happens to someone, like someone's home was raided in your neighborhood, then your reaction to, you know, how do you... How does that kind of influence how your day to day, like paranoia around certain things or noise, and even just like, and then obviously people whose homes have been raided, and then the, and and those kinds of things where it's like, I think because I know that there's a lot of like. <laughs> stigma attached to those kinds of things that then like everybody else wants to distance themselves from families who kind of have had any um counter-terror like legislation weaponized against them or used against them and but i think that's all like, i think the context stains account is as you say fear and it's that like no one wants to be associated with or become any closer to that violence right because it's it's like a survival thing isn't it but then that's so insidious because it's like that de- de- deteriorates and kind of dissolves any kind of community base for, I suppose, <coughs> resistance, which is, I find really, really, I don't know, just really sad, I think, because it's like, I I feel both things so strongly. Like I, I can see, I know how it feels to be a visible Muslim woman and to know that <coughs> um, you're being associated with all these things and you and you have to be more, you know, you, because you see Shemaine Begum in the news, you have to feel more worried that people have also seen her and will associate her with you. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, knowing that like to just be scared is is not, is actually going to, oh, it's just really frustrating. It's like, and I think that's kind of also deliberate, not in a conspiratorial way, but I think that in the right. sense that it, it's debilitating because how do you resist when you're, when everything is weaponized against you and community has made a really difficult thing. At another point in your book, um, you say this really great thing. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just quoting you to you. Um, but that liberalism has always been characterized by points of exceptions and limits in which democratic processes and rights can be sub- suspended and withheld. Um, and I, to me, that felt like a really succinct explanation of what I think more generally like people would talk about, like liberal racism. Mm-hmm. Um, and this kind of anti-racist logics, which doesn't go to its full conclusion. So it would be like, you know, um, the most important thing is that we're all represented in the legal system, but actually that's not really enough when the law can be uh, weaponized in, in a way to 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 remove the human rights of people who aren't seen to be human. Um, but what I wanted to say on that is that one of the kind of exceptions and limits within this framework is or one that seems to me to be one is um, this thing around secret justice, secret trials, secret evidence. Um, Could you tell us a bit about that? And like, what is this? Like, how can that be a thing? How can there be secret? How can your evidence be secret? How can... So, so yeah, so this is rooted in kind of a longer history of sort of counterterrorism policing. So um, on the on the back of um, a case that went to the European Court in the Hub Human Rights in the 1990s, which was a, a case that was protesting the deportation um, of an individual who's facing counterterrorism charges in Britain um, to uh, and, and would be deported to India and would very likely face um, 
torture if he was deported because of ongoing um, violence in Punjab at the time. Um, the At that time, the system in Britain was that if you were being deported for terrorism on national security grounds for terrorism-related offences, you couldn't, uh, you had no right of appeal. And if it was possible to appeal, uh, you were not allowed any legal representation. And the European Court of Human Rights decides that this is an infringement on human rights and that okay. another kind of something else has to take its place. That seems good. And so um, the in response, in 1997... Um, the Special Immigration Appeals Commission is established. And the Special Immigration Appeals Commission is an immigration court that hears deportation cases, appeals against deportation, when people are being deported for national security reasons. Right. So it's a it's a court that's specifically designed to deal with terrorism cases. So like a lot of the men in your book use that court, right? Well, mm. not, I mean, not in my book. The, uh, in the bigger project around sort of right. that I've worked on, we looked at a, a lot of cases that have gone through SAC um, be because it's a deep, because it's in its original form, it was dealing with deportation cases, not extradition cases. Okay, so, yeah, I got you, got you. Um, yeah. So, um, so basically the court is set up to hear appeals against deportation when deportation um, is happening or is, is being invoked for national security reasons. It's set up in 97 and, and this court allows for secret evidence. So right. it's, um, which is, uh, which is a, so it's a kind of court that, you know, it's a colonial admin, uh, administrative um, strategy. Mm. It was, you know, it's been used across mm. various parts of empire previously uh, so, or a variation of it. Um, and so it had been used once or twice before 2001, but then post 9-11, it kind of comes into its own. So we see on the back of a case, this kind of thing is set up, right. even though it was you know, in response to kind of human rights, European Court of Human Rights decision. Um, but then the, the apparatus is there for it to kind of come into its own post 9-11. Mm. And then post 2007 its use escalates again um and it's also so but and this court is just made up of three judges no jury Whoa. um the individuals who are appealing um are not allowed to see all the evidence <laughs> against them and neither is their lawyer they're given a wild they're given a special advocate and once that special advocate or the allocated a special advocate and once that special advocate sees all the evidence against them they're not allowed to communicate with the person they're defending well, so it's uh, often the case that you could be in that court and not know what you're being accused of which makes it very difficult to mount a defence yeah <laughs> sure would so yeah so it's been used uh, in deportation cases it's used in citizenship deprivation mm. cases it's used in cases where uh, individuals are being denied citizenship so mm. when people have come here you know, a resident here for some time, they apply for citizenship, um, but they don't get it and they're refused on national security grounds. Right. Uh, if they appeal, they uh, goes to SIAC. Um, so yeah, so its use has expanded mm. and this use of secret court or secret trial has also expanded to other courts. So it's okay. being used in other administrative courts. Oh. It's being used in family courts oh, against, um, with the increasing policing of Muslim women. Oh. Um, a number of women have had their, well, families have had their children um, taken from them or put into care and yes. secret 
secret evidence is being used in family Whoa. court. Secret evidence has been used or the attempt to kind of make part of a court, a trial secret has now happened in criminal court. So it's, it's use that sort of began in one specific yeah. forum, which is always problematic, but could be done because it was immigration yeah. um, and sort of outside that, you know, not yeah, citizens. Yeah. 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 Um, That's very interesting. Uh, has, has grown and expanded. Mm. And that kind of links to the conversation um, on an earlier episode where we were talking about legal and illegal um, immigrants. And I, it sounds true what you're saying that kind of things can be tried and tested out on right. people that we already kind of disposable. We don't really mind their legal rights being um, absent. And then, but, and, and so I think this is the message really for, uh, for this whole conversation is that like, you know, let's do away with this, like moderate extremists is a very superficial binary to understand any of the kind of national security terrorism concerns. And, and actually from what you're saying, it seems to me that the bigger concern here and the, the thing that is being hidden behind this binary is that the norms of like what is acceptable for the state to to do um, or the capacity for the state's power to be used have moved really rapidly, it sounds like, to, I mean, because if you described if you do, I, it's one of those things where I'm kind of like, if you described all these things and you, and you said, guess which state this is, or like, guess where this has happened or when, I don't think people would think that that's 21st century Britain. <laughs> right. like, I, I really don't. And I think people don't know that that's happening. And I think that that's, they would characterize that as, you know, authoritarianism. And right. that, that's the irony, I guess, is that, the, and even, and even Britain itself, right? Because we would go, but British values are democracy, law and order. But then you look at what's actually happening and yeah, I think it's, I think, I mean, that's why I kind of wanted you to have, to come on here as well as I think what, what you're talking about is, is so critical. Um, and I suppose it, and I think maybe I'm just making you repeat stuff you've said earlier, but you know, if I've been saying to everybody that if we to move away from the binary, um, that we're discussing so today, moderate and extremist, um, what do you think is a more useful way to think about these things? And is it just what you've said earlier about like context, um, or, or what is sort of, what's the take home message for people who kind of, because I think this can be quite an overwhelming conversation that we've had today. Um, but like, what's a useful thing maybe that people, or just useful way people can start thinking about things. If they read another article about terrorism, what's, you know, is it that they should now start asking questions around? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess just to, to think critically about um, what it is people are being criminalized for, um, what the context is of, of um, how this individual came to be in the situation that they're in. Um, to be critical of the kind of dominant narrative around, um, you know, terrorism cases, um, to think, yeah, and to, to kind of, to, to think, to, to be critical about the sort of power of representation. Mm. Um, and mm. to... To also think fundamentally about what state powers are being cultivated on the back of this demonization. Thank you for listening to this episode of Breaking Binaries. I hope you, like me, can take something from my guest this week. Look out for episodes fortnightly and if you enjoyed, please share with a friend or loved ones or even a nemesis. I want to thank Hussein Kasvani for making this possible and reaching out to me in the first place, as well as the whole gang of producers, Milo and Nate. The music you've been hearing was made by an old high school connection that came through, so shout out to Violence Jack and give him a follow at, at getviolencejack online. 
Thanks to all my guests for chatting with me every week and helping us think a little more critically and I hope humbly about our world. I do believe that the way we transform the world is transforming the way people think about it. So thank you for listening. I've been your host, Sahima Manzal Khan. Bye.